All right, so I am ready for the silent star or the first spaceship on Venus, Planet of the Dead, or Spaceship Venus Does Not Reply. It has a lot of different <laughs> titles. All right. the opening music to First Spaceship on Venus, and it was directed by Kurt Meitzig, and it was based on a, a novel by Stanislaw Lem, who is a pretty famous science fiction writer, and several other movies have been uh, made based on his books. Uh, it stars Yoko Tani, Aldrich Lukes, Ignacy Makowitz, Julius Ano uh, Anjoui, and a uh, whole supporting cast. What I loved about the cast was it was very uh, diverse. And there were men and women uh, on board and involved in the mission. Oh, yes. All, all kinds of diversity was, was uh, exhibited. The director um, is, uh, was, uh, died at 101 and is well regarded within the old uh, communist bloc. He did the 30 or so films. But the thing I found, oh, the, one of his most popular was 1965, The Rabbit Is Me. Hmm. I don't know what that's about. I just I just caught that. But here's an interesting footnote. He was, he was a member of the Central Committee of the Communist Party in East Germany, but he was banned by the Central Committee because he was seen as being too critical of the internal social problems in East Germany. So they basically said... You're out. <laughs> we don't want to hear your criticisms. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> done with you. <laughs> uh, I don't know yeah. what year that was, but I think it was probably in the late '60s. He did. Uh, he did uh, retire for a, a long period of time in northern Germany. And it does have a lot of different people. Yoko Tani, born in Paris, lived in Paris. This is one. She was in the movie. Who's been sleeping in my bed from 1963 with Dean Martin? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was like, wow. She made she a ton got of movies. Yeah, she made a ton of movies. <laughs> he did. She was discovered. She was a dancer in Paris, and she was she was discovered, quote unquote, discovered. She went on for a long career. Lived to be uh, in, I think, seventy. She was successful. There was a lot of diversity in the cast. The one. Uh, element that I bring to this that may not be true, or maybe there's more than one, but one that I can think of, is that in the 1960s, there was a lot of civil rights unrest and, and uh, it, problems in the U.S. And uh, this film was made in the 1960s. And I think because it was made in East Germany, they really went uh, strongly on having a diverse cast and showing that everybody was in this together. And I think it was a bit of propaganda on the on the uh, party's part 
it doesn't detract from the film. I enjoy that a lot, but I, I do think that comes through because, you know, there's lots of cheering and clapping and everybody's rah-rah. Mm-hmm. And uh, back in the 60s, it was far from that with uh, demonstrations at all in our country. So, Yeah, definitely felt that way. And we should say uh, who we are. So we're uh, Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at uh, classicmoviereviews.net and on Patreon. Just go to uh, patreon.com slash classicmoviereviews. And uh, yeah, this is uh, the second movie of four that we're doing. Um, films from other countries, kind of more obscure films that have some kind of supernatural or science fiction element to them. And uh, leading, leading us towards the end of the month with Halloween here in the United States. So uh, this definitely has both of those elements, supernatural, I think, and also uh, science fiction. And uh, for its time, I thought the special effects, because I'm sure the budget was quite small, uh, the special effects I thought were pretty good. As good as some of the drive-in science fiction movies that I saw here in the 1950s and 60s. Although it'll never outdo that bamboo. Oh, <laughs> bamboo saucer. Bamboo saucer, yes, with Dan Durier. <laughs> it's hard to beat that. Uh, I thought the special effects were really well done, and especially later in the film when they're on the planet, and they have those weird plants or whatever kind of growing out of the ground, and, and then they make their way toward the city, and they've got some great miniature shots with some, looks like rear projection maybe. But uh, definitely hell, definitely some of the best or better special effects for 1960 that I've seen. How about those metal, those little metal bugs? Yeah. That reminded me of things that show up in later science fiction films from the 80s, 90s, and even today. The evil metal creatures. I don't think those little metal bugs were evil. They were some kind of an archive, and they had they, they all contained different bits of information. Oh, okay. So the premise of this movie is that uh, there was a big meteor that hit northern Russia... And it was the... In 1908, yeah. Yeah, well, it started with a T, uh, something... I can't remember the name of that meteor. I'm looking for it here. It's Tunguska? Yeah. T-U-N-G-U-S-K-A. In 1985, during the course of the work undertaken to irrigate the Gobi Desert, a strange fragment of rock was discovered. Several remarkable features of this rock attracted the attention of the scientists engaged on the project. Research revealed that it contained a spool. Further analysis showed the material to be extraterrestrial in origin and not of human manufacture. Where did it come from? Then somebody remembered that in June 1908 in Siberia, an explosion had occurred equivalent in force to a hydrogen bomb, an explosion visible within a radius of 350 miles. At the time, it was thought to have been caused by a giant meteor. 77 years later, an international expedition tried to determine the trajectory and the point of impact and to find some debris of what was called the Tonggu meteor. 
Shortly afterwards, under the auspices of the World Federation for Space Research, scientists meet to celebrate the anniversary of the establishment of the first space station on the moon. Professor Herringway from the United States makes a public statement about the famous meteor. Our calculations indicate, confirmed also by the results recently transmitted to us by our colleagues on Luna 3, that the mysterious Tunga meteor was really a spaceship from another planet which exploded in the air before landing. This hypothesis stimulated scientific thought throughout the world. And that was a real event, so that, that actually did, did happen, and it, was, uh, it just leveled like miles and miles of forest. Was, uh, and so that's kind of the jumping off point. And so they find this uh, metal wire artifact in, in the wreckage of this meteor crash. And it's clearly from, not from this Earth, and they think that it actually contains a message. So they try to start uh, decoding the message. And the, the first bit that they get is that it came from Venus. So then they, they're like, well, we've got to go to Venus. Um, clearly, we've got to go to Venus because this must be a message. They wanna, they're want they inviting us to come and visit them. And that's just an assumption that they make. They don't actually know that at the time. But they swung into action rather quickly and pivoted from their spaceship going to Mars to going to Venus. Right, right. They already had a mission going to Mars, and they, they reconfigured it for Venus. Yeah, that's right. Good morning, my friends. May I please have an interview? This afternoon, I have news of the utmost importance to announce. As you probably know already, our most modern spaceship, the Cosmostrator, is now completed and ready to set forth on our exploration of space. The World Federation for Space Research has decided to change the destination of the Cosmostrator. Instead of sending her to Mars, she will be directed toward the planet Venus. Oh, that's great news, isn't it? Have you any ideas to the date of the takeoff? One more question, if you don't mind, Professor. Do you think there's anybody living on Venus? Did you manage to make contact with Venus? No, my friends, Venus is silent, but we'll soon discover why. And who's going with you? Well, let me present some of the other scientists who'll take part in this expedition. They are all first-class specialists chosen from among the most qualified in their particular fields. They, with others who are coming, will form the crew of Cosmostrator 1. And I love that spaceship. It looked very futuristic. Oh, totally. Man. Yeah. It has almost like a medieval quality to it. It looks like a turret on a tower or something like uh, yeah. that. <laughs> with rocket engines. <laughs> yeah. And so they assembled, you know, the, the mission to Mars was a... Was a a bunch of astronauts and scientists from around the world and like we were saying at the beginning it's a very diverse cast uh, and so they, they launch off into space on their way to Venus and they continue to work on decoding the message on their way to Venus Will you all come to the Marex please? That's a cosmic document deciphered the last part of the spool. It gives complete meaning to the cosmic document.
translate. We will initially subject the planet to a very intense bombardment of radiation. The conquest and occupation of the Earth will then present no difficulty. When the ionization intensity has fallen by one half, the final extermination phase can start. This can only mean an attack against our planet, an invasion by the inhabitants of Venus. The cosmic document was not intended for us to read. It's a cold-blooded blueprint of destruction. <laughs> so then it's like, oh boy. <laughs> yeah, that's quite a, quite a different, quite a different uh, message when they get it translated. The, the the cast was interesting. It was made up of the, uh, in the characters, U.S., France, India, Germany, Soviet Union, Asia. It was really uh, a cross section of the population of the world. Somebody from Africa. I don't know which country, but yeah, very nicely. <clears throat> nice. And you know the story. Is is really interesting, and they and they do a good job of pulling it off. I think it held my interest. I'd never seen it. I'd never seen. I'd never heard of it until a few weeks ago, and uh, I, I guess I was surprised at how well produced it was coming out of East Germany because I didn't even realize that they had much of a film production capability. Uh, but that was clearly not the case because it could have. This could have been produced in Hollywood, no problem. I mean, it was that good. Did you are are you familiar with the writer of this Stanislaus Lem? A, a little bit. Um, one of his movies um, was made a couple different times uh, so, about Solaris. The, Solaris about the yeah. uh, intelligent planet, and it was remade, I think, in the nineties with, or no, it was probably in the two thousands with um, George Clooney. Yes, George Clooney. Yep. And there's another version from Germany earlier. Yeah, it's a pretty good movie. Pretty good movie. And I liked his stories because they really make you think. And they, they sort of pose questions about, you know, the meaning of life and the meaning of intelligence and, and our assumptions of what that is like in the universe. So, Well, we, we our intrepid crew then goes to Venus picking the story back up. There's some fun hijinks on the spaceship. Um, they, What I wanted to say about what we learn about these people on the spaceship is that they're all very capable in their field. And it reminded me a little bit of like uh, Star Trek. You know, they're, they're on the... They're on the, the deck of the ship, and they've got this view screen, and they have different stations that they're at. And I thought, well, this is, this is like a forerunner to Star Trek, sort of. This is the beginning of my personal logbook. There's no one in the nerve center of the Cosmos Trader. The computer is keeping us on our course. In case of unforeseen circumstances, it can take immediate decisions to alter our speed or direction. This electronic brain will be our pilot for the next 30 days because no human being could handle the immensely complex machines of the spaceship by himself. Up to now, we have covered a distance of 2,600,000 miles. Dr. Amigura is noting our reactions carefully and keeping close check on our health and well-being. The special liquid food, which can easily be absorbed in a state of no gravity, is proving very successful with all of us. Our chief engineer spends most of his time in his machine shop, testing his automats over and over again. 
It is thanks to them that we are relieved of many tiresome tasks. Our expert in cybernetics has to be everywhere. He's one of the key men of the expedition. Professor Sigano devotes all his time to the message from Venus. He and Chen Yu are trying to decipher the damaged spool, which means they spend long hours at the Marrocks. The electronic brain is working night and day, but no one can be sure what the result will be. Haringway, our commander, is keeping a constant check on our course. I know the, the television version of Star Trek, I think, first came out in 1966 or 1964, so this is almost at a parallel time. We do know they didn't borrow the sets, though. No, I mean, it, it doesn't, it definitely doesn't look exactly like Star Trek, but the setup, because they've got these different kinds of specialties that they have on the ship, and and what I really appreciated is that they didn't make the women be just like serving coffee. They, yeah. the women, the women were full on, you know, scientists and they knew their stuff and the men listened to them. And, you know, whether that was propaganda or not, I, I, it was refreshing to see in a film from this era. And it had, uh, Star Trek, uh, also had that kind of diversity in its cast, even from other planets and other worlds. So and, there, yeah, that is a good parallel. I didn't really pick up on that when I watched the scenes inside the ship, but very much so. And I really so enjoyed get... that Indian professor. Yeah, he was great. He was on top of his game. Yeah. And so they get into orbit around the planet, and they are trying to decide where to land. They can they can only land and take off once, but they have this this sort of like lander shuttle thing. Gosh, the more I talk about this, it really does remind me of Star Trek because the, the Starship, <laughs> Starship Enterprise had the shuttles that could go down to the planet. Um, and so they send one of the crew member down to Venus and he... Uh, the landing on the planet reminded me a little bit of the um, later alien movies like Prometheus or even the first alien movie when they when they go down through the atmosphere and it's really rough and, and you you know it's they can't even see... The ground and they're flying by radar or you know some kind of um, technology like that and he kind of does he crash land on the planet i think he sort of crash lands on the planet and we're flying at 300 miles altitude Speed is 4.3 miles a second. Are you ready, Brinkman? All right, let her go. receiver I'm not getting you there's something wrong with your receiver can you hear me now I can't understand you something's wrong with your transmitter tell her what's the matter with our transmitter heavy electrical disturbance we're completely blocked out hello Brinkman 
What is it, Brinkman? Herringway, can you hear me? I'm now at 1,500 feet. Visibility nil. Radar indicates that the surface is extremely mountainous. I can't see anything. I'm completely surrounded by thick clouds. Wait a minute. Yes, I can see land, boys. I can see land. is not receiving us. I can't make contact. Our altitude, 24,000 feet. And then they have to bring down the big ship. Yeah. But they've got this cute little robot, which kind of reminded me of R2D2, and <laughs> yeah, it's like a little—it's like a little tank, uh, and and they even—it even makes a few beeping sounds, and they talk to it like it's a, a pet almost. Brinkman calling, Cosmos Trader, please answer me. Over. Omega. is with this guy that went down to the planet to investigate before the big ship comes down and yeah the sets on the for the planet surface were great and it reminded me of planet of the vampires a little bit which i don't think we've reviewed yet but we've talked about a few times which was an italian film um but yeah there's some similarities in the set design i thought i thought it's very, it's very reminiscent of all those other shows. I wanted to mention that uh, Gunther Simon, who played Brinkman, the, uh, I think he's the pilot. He has an interesting background. I found in looking around the internet, he was an East German actor and a member of the ruling party of the uh, Communist Party. But during World War II, he was in the German army, and he was captured uh, by. U.S. paratroopers in uh, France and shipped off to a prisoner of war camp in Colorado where he spent a lot of time. So that guy got around. And he comes back, he's the he's the uh, U.S. pilot Brinkman. Yeah. He was the one, was he the one that landed the, the first shuttle, I think? Uh, yes. Yeah, he was the pilot. And he he's out walking around the planet and 
Uh, I was reading through the IMDb comments, and they said that the little air tanks that they have on their back would last about five minutes. <laughs> but they had three of them. Yeah, so maybe so 15, 15 minutes. minutes. <laughs> That's probably what they could afford on their budget. Grab it's those. a little detail that nobody would notice, but it was just funny because I had read the comments and picked up on it when I watched it. Um, and he falls into this uh, cavern, and there's all these little metallic, almost like bugs bouncing around down there, and, and you think he's going to be attacked, and that, that's the end of this guy. But actually not. They're not... They're not dangerous. They're, we find out later that they're um, little computers that have information from a library. I've seen those bugs in other science fiction films, and I can't right now remember the names of the films where there were small, uh, bad bugs. But these, these were more information carriers. Yeah, you're right. But he survived. There was a movie from the '90s. Remember where there, there, these machines would burrow under the ground, and then they yeah. would come up and attack people, and they had become artificially intelligent. It was oh gosh, what was the name of that? I'll, maybe I'll remember it. But yeah. So then uh, they he well he can't communicate with the main ship, and the main ship can't communicate with him. So they the main ship decides, well, we've just got to go down and, and risk it. And amazingly, they land. <laughs> like a hundred yards from where he landed. I know, they had great telemetry. <laughs> yeah, and they find him, and there's this little celebration, and the little robot comes beeping and booping around, and it's kind of a funny scene where they're reunited. His helicopter exploded. Poor old Brinkman. There's the cause. There's a high-tension line underground. You're on. Get the crawlers out of the way, or the next time the voltage mounts, exactly the same thing will happen to us. Brinkman, we thought you were dead. I was lucky. You might have chosen a better place to land. Why? What, what do you mean? There's a high-tension line over there. <laughs> now, your machine blew up just because you landed right on top of that surface power line. All we have to do is to follow it, and it will probably lead us to the inhabitants of Venus. There's no point in trying to do that. I've already found the inhabitants of Venus. And I've brought one of them back for you. What is it? I wonder if it is a form of life. I'll investigate at once. All right, Chen Yu. And while he's doing that, let's go and try to follow that line. Okay. And they need to now figure out, um, you know, what happened on the planet. and. There's kind of a cool post-apocalyptic storyline here about what happened to the the aliens on Venus and the reason that his spaceship blew up on landing. I, I remember now it, it, it's not that he crash landed, but he landed on these underground power line things, and they they would pulse with power every once in a while, and and when it pulsed with power, it blew up his ship, and the these underground power poles or whatever they are kind of recede off into the distance and they thought well maybe we should follow this and maybe this will lead us to where we can learn some more about the venusians yeah they're still thinking that that it's not going to be difficult or treacherous 
Well, and and it's it's kind of funny too because they know now that the Venusians were planning to take over Earth, and they don't really have any weapons or any way to to uh, protect themselves. And and at the same time, it kind of looks like a wasteland. There's this wind that's blowing, and and it's just gray and dark, and there's really nothing left. So maybe they realize that. It's not dangerous. Like something's something's happened. They don't know what's happened yet. But they keep exploring. They fit a lot of stuff on that spaceship. They have like uh, the land, the lander, and then they've got these rovers that they can get into, and they drive off down along, and they're trundling along next to that those pulsing power poles, and then they uh, come to this really weird-looking geodesic dome that's glowing. It looked like a giant. Uh... Either a, a golf golf ball or a geodesic uh, do, uh, dome. And you remember that spaceship from uh, the movie that we watched? Uh, it it came from outer space. Is that the name of it? Because it really reminded me of the spaceship from. I remember that movie well. And the that, spaceship yeah. was buried in the side of the crater, kind of thing. Yeah. Maybe they were from Venus. Richard Carlson was in that. Yes, that's right. That's it. They continue to explore and they find. Uh, some more artifacts they find this weird pit with this glowing these glowing lights at the bottom of it but they don't quite know what it is yet that was well done yeah it was really well done very everything was very mysterious and otherworldly like it it definitely looked alien and then they get to the to what looks like the remains of a city and this goo start coming alive and and it looks like it's going to attack them so they just they use their ray guns on it and they shoot it and as soon as they do that like bad things start happening. Um, it, it's like the the dome starts pulsing and those power lines are pulsing and it's like something has turned on, you know, like something's powering up. And they, they escape back to the spaceship and they realize that they've, they've uh, turned on like a doomsday machine that was aimed at the Earth that the Venusians were going to use to wipe out all the life on the planet. Professor Stikano wants everybody in the Marix, please. Our researches on the metal insects found in the cave have told us a little of this planet's history. As to the message we heard, there's no doubt about it. The inhabitants of Venus were contemplating launching an atomic attack on our planet. But the attack wasn't carried out. In accident, they didn't expect to upset that plan. Their atomic weapons got out of their control, a chain reaction was unleashed, and they all perished. Only their shadows remained. And their energy projectors, although partially destroyed, are capable of working again. If their energy reactions are set in motion by some accident or even by one of us. Why, what do you mean that we've started the reaction? When that rock fell into the black mud, what happened? But the rock was thrown out as if the slime was a living thing. Then something terrible happened. The slime began to grow rapidly. First, it dilated. Now tell us, what happened next? The black slime started to move. Yes. It began to follow us. We were cornered. What did you do? I used the deuteron ray gun and I shot into it. You should never have done that. You started an atomic reaction. There was nothing else to do. We had no other way of getting out. Yes. You started a chain reaction. 
over the whole atomic installation. Now we're really in a nice mess. What can we do? What time was it? 17 hours 10. I remember. Yes. Yes. It was at that moment that the sphere turned red. It looks as if mass changed into energy by process rather like that of the atom bomb. The people of this planet knew how to reverse the process. They changed mass into energy, but also they could change energy back into mass. Fantastic. The ends of Venus are, or rather were, far in advance of us in the applications of physics. That's one thing we have to acknowledge. Again, how many times have we seen that in a science fiction film where accidentally they've unleashed the terror from hell? Well, and definitely like Overtone's uh, Forbidden Planet here where yes. the technology got, you know, they got run, you know, it was runaway technology and it ended up killing everything on the planet. And that's what happened. And there was like some kind of an atomic explosion that wiped out every, all the life on Venus. The, uh, the, the, the black bubbling stuff reminded me of the blob. Yeah. You know, it was moving around. They couldn't get rid of it. But uh, totally. I thought it was neat that one guy comes back and says, it was my mistake. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have shot it. And it's too late. <laughs> They've got to figure something out. Uh, and that now it's really the pressure's on. Is if they don't figure out how to turn this, there's this convoluted thing about how they can make something happen and then retract it and make it go away, and there could be an explosion that can reverse it. Yeah, I there's think they had to go back to that pit. About. Yeah, they had to go back to that pit, and they and they find out that that pit there's like a giant computer down there, and they've got to somehow turn it off. And yeah, I lost a little bit of the plot there because what 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 happened was okay. I was watching this on YouTube and I had the auto-generated captions on. And right around that time when they are exploring the city, the captions just got to be so hilarious. <laughs> you were because sending it, me some. Because <laughs> it's auto-generated, so the, the the computer's like listening to the audio and then and then turning it into text. And some of the captions that it put up were just absolutely hilarious. I'll put a couple of them in the show notes. Um but yeah, if you watch this movie on YouTube, you should turn on the auto captions, and uh, <laughs> that's half the fun get, of the movie for get me. Get lost in it. But yeah. they, I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but they also discover that there was this enormous, I don't know, awful event, historically awful event that ruined their civilization, and they had images of people, of their, of their life forms, that were burned into the rocks and all, which was very reminiscent of photos after the uh, two attacks in Hiroshima and uh, Nagasaki, where images of people were burned into the building remains. So, so here's an interesting uh, observation. Uh, so apparently in the original version of this film that was released in East Germany, there was like a five-minute dialogue or speech about Hiroshima and Nagasaki from uh, the Yoko Tani character. And I think there's a real strong like anti-nuclear war vibe in the in the movie, like a message in the movie, in the original movie. And that that whole scene was cut out and it and it and it's anything related to that was cut out in the version that we watched. But it, but it but it shows up in this little this little clip of yeah. the Venusians and their shadows 
burned into the sides of the building and yeah exactly like what you saw from from the atomic bombs on, in Japan. I would think that the director and the producers really had to walk a fine line in trying to get their message across in the film just from the censorship and the control from the party. I mean, it's it again. It, it reminds us of what was going on in the '30s and '40s uh, with the production code in the U.S., but with more severe ramifications. Yeah, and and I read that there were three writing teams and twelve screenplays before a final script was acceptable to the studio and the government. So yes, I saw that. I also wondered. It was released in the uh, United States in. What uh, was the date on that? I had it right here in October of 1962. And for the life of me, I don't know where it would have shown. Maybe uh, maybe in drive-in theaters or second feet. They were still doing in some theaters second features. But I never, ever saw anything about it uh, when I was living in Denver and Boulder. I read in the user reviews that somebody um, remembers seeing it in the theater when it was released. And they... They were, you know, kids like in their early tweens, you know, like that 10 to 15 age, I think probably. And they thought it was just another Hollywood science fiction movie. They had no idea at the time that it was out of East Germany when they when they saw it in the theater. Oh, okay. So. Well, let's see. We um, the plot is getting more stressful for everybody. Of course, there's a countdown, right? They have to get this done. Otherwise, all all life on Earth will be destroyed. And uh, somebody sacrifices themselves at the end, and, and they're able to uh, stop the, the countdown. And then they... they uh, there was a weird yeah thing that didn't make any sense scientifically, but the planet's gravity is like reversing or something and it's yeah. it's pushing the spaceship off the off the surface it's thrusting it out three of the crew members are, are still on the planet yeah so they so somebody sacrifices themselves and then a, a couple of them can't get back to the ship in time and then they're catapulted back out into space and uh i i don't even rem- they don't yeah they make it back to the planet earth and they land, and there's this big celebration. And I was wondering why the, there were crews that were working around the ship, and they all had these jumper suits on with big letters on the back of them, like A, B, C. Yeah, I saw that. There was there were some others where they had M. Yeah, and I, I, I thought that, that was, was kind of interesting, because I, I, I would imagine it'd be similar to having like a blue jumper suit versus a red jumper suit versus yellow or something. It's uh, probably ways to identify what what they work on on the field there but it was it was different than i'd ever seen before well and the and the uh the mission was a success because they were able to stop this death machine from from blowing up all life on earth what yeah so that's that's to me that seemed like good news and and everybody (laughs) everybody at the landing port was excited and thrilled about it and then there were Oh, a half a dozen speeches about how we had to quit fighting and there needed to be an attempt to put an end to this struggle that was going on or we could easily blow ourselves up. That really seemed like it was from the 60s, even the yeah, 50s. Totally. Because totally. we've seen some war. of that in the 1950s in some of the black and white science fiction movies from Hollywood yeah. where they have a, a bit of a, of a uh, speech at the end about the, the whole thing. 
but uh, it it did it was one of the highest grossing most successful films ever produced in the uh, East German film industry and the studio where it was made is still used I mean it's of course, the country's unified now, and uh, the studio is, uh, oh, where is it, Babelsberg Studio, mm. and it was used for uh, a Tom, it was used in the uh, for the making of a Tom Cruise movie about the attempts to assassinate Hitler How back in the 2000, early 2000, I think. I forget the name of that. Wasn't there a little bit of, of a... Uh... I felt like they left it open for a sequel at the end because I think they were talking about how they had to mount another mission back to Venus to try to learn their technology and learn more about them and that that would help because there was this idea that maybe there were other life forms in the galaxy that they would need to protect themselves from. And I thought, oh man, this is so, this is so great. This like <laughs> this is like leaving it open for spaceship to Mars or whatever, you know, first spaceship to Mars or something. It makes sense though, because they they knew. I think they knew that that it was going to be successful, or they hoped that it would be, and this would be a way to to continue it. You know, they have sequels two and three, and maybe four. Oh yeah, yeah. I would love to see like first spaceship to Mars, first spaceship to. Europa or something like that <laughs> you know it's like yeah it didn't get reviews that were favorable from some people some thought it was very good others not it's pretty it's pretty uh split i would say some people really like it and some people really hate it <laughs> i see where it won a golden spaceship award which is a european award presented at the festival of utopian films another one Ooh. that i've not that sounds cool. I've not learned about anyway. So my rating on this film is a uh, six. I think it's above average. And it's got pretty good special effects, uh, but nothing really a lot different than some of the other films we've uh, watched. Although the fact that it comes from behind the Iron Curtain adds a whole element to it, and I and I was uh, not enamored with some of the propaganda elements that sometimes were subtle, sometimes were not. But So that's my rating. I kind of want to go with a five. I think it's uh, it's a fun movie to watch, but it's there's parts where, where it's pretty slow and you, you kind of feel like, okay, I'm going to just get through this part so that I can see what happens next. And, and then uh, some of the storyline doesn't really quite hold together from a plot standpoint. And, uh, yeah, I didn't, I, I, yeah, the, the political messages were definitely there, but that didn't bother me too much, but I, but I really love the special effects and I love the ideas of it and I, yeah, I'd love to see a, a remake of it or a sequel to it or something like that. I, uh, I read a, uh, quote from the British director, Alex Cox, and he, uh, he had a positive comment. He said, The silent stars' images of melted cities and crystallized forests overhung by swirling clouds of gas are masterpieces of production design. And that, that's probably true. I mean, they were limited in what they had to work with, both in budget and in technology in 1967. Yeah, it's, it's a, I would give parts of it a, a higher rate. I give parts of it an eight or a nine, like the production design, the the way that the different people are portrayed 
Yeah, the diversity of the cast. The diversity and the fact that the women had really strong roles. I love that. It's just that when I when I put it all together, I, it's yeah, it's kind of in the middle for me. Um, but yeah, definitely something to watch, and I would I would recommend watching it at least once. And it's at least right now it's on YouTube. And if you watch it on YouTube, be sure to turn on the auto-generated captions. <laughs> I didn't do that, but I think I'll catch a glimpse of that again because some of the ones you sent me were hilarious. <laughs> the computer was trying its best, but it just wasn't making any sense. So uh, our next podcast takes us to the dangerous world of the scientist Dana Andrews in a 1957 film, Night of the Demon by its UK title, or also known as Curse of the Demon. And it will take us back, Matt, to those times when we watched that film endlessly on an eight millimeter projector in the basement of our home. Yeah. We could almost, we didn't need the dialogue because of course it didn't have any sound. No, you didn't really need the dialogue for for that because you could pretty much tell what was happening. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I, I, calling him a scientist, I think, might be generous. Is he more <laughs> like an occultist? He's he's some kind of a historian slash occultist yeah. uh, researcher. A parascientist. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's the forerunner of the X Files, maybe. Ah, yeah. Mulder. Mulder. Yeah. Oh, I like that. I like that. Anyway, that's our next podcast. Yep, and so that was our review of first spaceship on Venus. And uh, this is Matt coming to you from North Bend. And Bob in Los Angeles wishing everybody happy movie watching. Oh, I forgot to give a weather update. (laughs) (laughs) Ours is much better. We're having a 100% chance of rain and a thunderstorm later, so I'll I'll be staying inside. Honor the memory of three great men. Talua saved the expedition from disaster. Chen Yu discovered life on Venus. And Brinkman was the first human ever to set foot on the planet. May they never be forgotten. We found traces of a great civilization that had advanced beyond our comprehension. The Venusian science had gone beyond their power to control it. A dreadful catastrophe fell upon them. They were destroyed by their own machines. We still have a grave task before us. We must use our knowledge to establish life again on Venus. And then after that, go on to explore the other planets. We'll fly further and further Mankind's destiny. I think Kalen's done with his kayak training. Yeah, he went to Leavenworth to go hike the enchantments today and then he's headed up to Bellingham. Oh. But he's he keeps himself really busy. He moves around. <laughs> he and his kayak are yeah. on the go. 
I enjoyed our texts on my birthday. I, I still laugh at those two people in the car. <laughs> Shut up, I'm counting my money. <laughs> Nancy has two aunts, and they were in. If they were in the car, they'd be like that. <laughs> Shut up! I, I hope I'm like that when I'm older. I'm already there. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? 